This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. turn to Amy Binder from the University of California, San Diego. Amy is the author of Becoming Right, How Campuses Shape Conservatives, published by Princeton University Press. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us, Amy. Well, thank you for having me. Amy, can you tell us about Becoming Right? What's the book about and uh, what are the big insights? Well, uh, this book was published five years ago, so in some ways it feels like old news. Um, On the other hand, uh, I'd like to think that there are some lessons in here that are useful today. Basically, the reason why I wanted to write this book was because back in 2006, 2007, when I began thinking about it, there was a lot of critique coming out uh, that you were hearing in the media, that you're hearing from some conservative organizations organizations about how campuses were indoctrinating liberal bastions of pampered intellectuals. Yes. <laughs> so so I, uh, I, you know, David Horowitz was coming up with the Academic Bill of Rights. He was, he was uh, doing that. He had written a book called The Most Dangerous Professors in the Land. Uh, there are a bunch of other books coming out. So I was fascinated by this discourse uh, and wanted to know what students themselves were experiencing on campus and even ha- what they thought about these critiques. So I decided to look at this qualitatively and to do a comparative case study of two campuses, one a private elite university uh, on the East Coast and one a public flagship university uh, Uh, in the interior West. You know, basically I wanted to see uh, what conservative students were thinking about kind of ideologically, what their issue positions were, how they were experiencing faculty and their peers on these campuses, uh, what kinds of events they held, what kinds of future positions in politics or policy or what have you they were planning. Um, And so I went about doing interviews with these students. And what were the big differences that you saw between the Northeastern Elite College Republican and the Western flagship uh, Republican? This was just a, an unanticipated finding, actually, kind of the blockbuster finding of the book, if you will. Uh, and basically, the thing that we found in common with these schools was that the students on each of the campuses more or less held the same ideological orientations. They were all for low taxes, small government, national security. They were almost all of a mind about even the social issues, which I was a little surprised about because in the West, there's more of a libertarian flavor. But, you know, most people were against abortion and so on. Um, but the the real differences were in how they thought about the types of events that they wanted to put on on their campus and, and, and just kind of the disposition of what it meant to be conservative. So uh, on the West, uh, on the West campus, there was a real impulse to have a lot of fun, put on events that would really uh, poke liberals in the eye, get them to respond in a very kind of aggressive way. Like what? What's now become pretty widely 
appreciated as the affirmative action bake sales. Sometimes these are now called the social uh, justice bake sales. Basically, what you do is you'd set up a stand to sell cookies to, to folks on campus. And if you're a white person coming to buy a cookie from this stand, then you would pay uh, $2 for your cookie. But if you're a black student, you would pay 25 cents. And the idea was that this was a great illustration of how whites are discriminated uh, against on campus. And these were, you know, incredibly confrontational. Liberal students, black students, other uh, types of students did not like these affirmative action bake sales, and they tended to attract a lot of media attention. Administrators got involved, so they became these big cause celeb on, on campus. Catch an illegal alien day, animal appreciation, barbecue, things that uh, meant to kind of slay the sacred cows of, of the left, and uh, highly provocative, really confrontational. On the East Coast campus, we found, and when I say we, I mean my co-author, Kate Wood, and I found that uh, conservatives knew about these kinds of events at Western and, and other campuses. Uh, they thought that they would be fun to hold. They understood the allure of them. They knew that national conservative organizations were sponsoring them, but the Eastern students felt like they could not possibly hold an event like this on their campus. It was not becoming uh, to students such as themselves, students with great futures. They were concerned about what that would look like on their resume in their future. They didn't want to attract media attention. They were much more interested in having um, good discussions with people on campus who didn't necessarily agree with them, try to get their conservative points across. Um, and, and really, they, they just thought that this did not fit with their uh, kind of orientation. So I'm just going to interject. This was clearly not Columbia's campus because I can recall Columbia hosting at least a few uh, affirmative action bake sales. Yeah, it was not Columbia. And I, I, what what were the years that you heard I about? I think these? there were two years in a row while while I was still in grad school. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, Bush probably years. yeah, Bush years. I, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, Columbia is, is, a, is an interesting campus, and they have a, a quite a, uh, I guess, more confrontational college Republicans. I mean, this is also something that you wouldn't necessarily expect to happen at Berkeley, which is, you know, the flag, one of the flagship campuses in the UC system, uh, not the one that, that we studied for Western. But at some of these schools, the the college Republicans, you know, at, at some of the most identifiably liberal schools, the college Republicans, uh, they have some of the the largest numbers of of any other universities in the in the U.S. and and Columbia may be like that. What does account for the difference? Why why are the Western flagship? Republicans different from the Eastern So, elites. you know, one really important point to get across is that we do not think that uh, college Republicans and, and associated conservative groups are home uh, at the Western campus are home to students who are less smart than those at Eastern elite. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're very savvy. They're very strategic. You know, this isn't about just, you know, folks who are indoctrinated into Fox News and are unthinking or anything like that. I mean, they're really thinking a lot about what kinds of events they want to have. Um, so we looked elsewhere beyond just kind of individual talents. And what we found was that 
it was the culture and the organizational arrangements on campus that uh, led these people to, to thinking about themselves as conservatives in very different ways. And what I mean by that is, you know, at Eastern Elite, 100% of students live on campus or virtually every student lives on campus all four years. They have smaller class sizes, so they get to know faculty better. They get to know their classmates better. They uh, talk about faculty in a different way as world-class experts, as people who would not uh try to politicize their classrooms because they were consummate, you know, knowledge producers and so forth. So there is a lot more of a sense of trust, closeness, uh, solidarity. doesn't mean they agreed with everybody on campus, but there was a kind of collective we-ness that built up at Eastern. And we think that that really militated against um, doing something that would be seen as inappropriate. Whereas at Western Flagship, you know, it's a much bigger school. Uh, a lot more people live off campus. They go to classes where a lot, there are a lot more students per faculty. Faculty might be seen as, you know, a distant figure up there. So there is a lot more anonymity and, you know, a sense of maybe enemy in a, in a way. And this led, we think, students to feel like, hey, what the hell, we can, we can do whatever we want. It's, it's worth it to have fun. We're college kids. Uh, why not just kind of go big, get the media? This is going to serve us well. So there are a bunch of different factors there, I realize, that I just named. Um, but it was the real feeling of, uh, of the campus that differed mm -hmm. in, in these cases. And maybe this, this, uh, this explains Columbia as well, in a way, that... Columbia is a campus that does not have that kind of mm -hmm. community bubble feeling nearly so much. It's in the middle of New York, um, probably more yeah. students living off campus, doing their own thing. It's just a guess, but it's it, it, it may fit in. What do you think of this idea that colleges are indoctrinating uh, young people into liberalism? Uh, you, you hear it a lot in, in the right, as you said. Do you think there is some substance, maybe not entirely true, but do you think that at the very least colleges are serving conservative students poorly? I'm not uh, convinced that we are serving conservative students well, um, but I wouldn't say it's because we are indoctrinating them. I mean, one of the really interesting findings that we had with students across both campuses was that conservative students were almost to a person convinced that they were getting better educations in college than their liberal classmates were. They thought that it was very useful to them to have to hone their arguments, um, to really sharpen their debating skills because so many people around them uh, were liberal, and uh, they really thought that liberal students were quite complacent because the liberal students had a sense that faculty uh, agreed with them. I do think that um, liberal faculty or faculty in general uh, can do a better job of 
not being complacent themselves and thinking that all of their students in their classroom uh, must be liberal because that's what uh, smart people are. Um, we heard complaints about this from the conservative students too, that, that uh, even if faculty weren't kind of egregiously uh, saying nasty things about George W. Bush, who was, who was president at the time we were doing uh, most of our interviews, uh, they were making the assumption that, you know, if, if people were in my class and got into college, then they must fall somewhere on the liberal side. So I think that we can do more to support conservative students. And I personally am committed to doing that on my campus. With this issue of conservative students feeling that they're getting a better education because they both have to basically see the text and the subtext or, you know, the argument, the counter argument. I've noticed this a lot, uh, not so much from the students, but you'll sometimes hear you know, people make this argument that because mainstream discourse is dominated by the center left, anyone who opposes that, whether it's from the center right or the far left, uh, kind of has to understand both the mainstream perspective and the uh, their counter narrative. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the theory of dual consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, not to kind of trivialize the difference of, you know, race versus, uh, you know, the achieved difference of political uh, disagreement. But, you know, there is this idea that if there is a mainstream, whatever that mainstream may be, uh, that kind of has uh, hegemonic power, then anyone who's in opposition to that has to understand it on its own terms as well as understand the opposition to it. In some ways, they may even understand the mainstream position better than somebody who takes it unquestioningly. Totally agree. I totally agree with that, Gabriel. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, I am a person of color. Well, it's been a while since we've seen each other face to face. And and I'm also a woman, right? I'm also a woman. Okay, now you're shocking. I know, I know. And yeah, I mean, it's always so interesting to hear conversations about campus politics and, you know, and the liberal leanings of campus faculty, because, you know, all throughout my academic career, like, you know, in undergrad and also in graduate school, I was always shocked at how not progressive my my professors were. Right. And I think a lot of it was because of my my standpoint and where I stood. And I actually did think, okay, I need to, okay, this is a text and this is a subtext and this is how I have to work through this. And at the same time, you know, on my campus as well, there's, and and I'm sure across the country, ever since the election of Trump, you know, there have been many people saying that, you know, we need to be able to protect conservative students, that now the very same conservative students who poo-pooed safe spaces for students during the Obama era were now actually asking for safe spaces themselves in order to be able to support Trump and, you know, and be very vocal in, in that support. I'm wondering, making, you know, calling you know, certain students snowflakes, but now themselves, you know, turning into snowflakes. So I'm wondering whether or not any of you um, are experiencing this on your campuses. Well, before you get into that, I I totally agree with what you're saying about safe spaces. It's weird because people reject the specific language as kind of the tribal markers of the opposition who they define themselves against. Mm -hmm. But if you just change the names... Uh, concepts like safe spaces, microaggressions, snowflakes, all that sort of stuff uh, has precise parallels side to side, right? This idea of, like, you know, you need a place where you can be amongst people who sympathize with you and aren't going to criticize you and aren't going to make you feel uncomfortable. The idea that people 
not so much deliberately insulting you, but just t having a different set of assumptions that reflect the hegemony of their side or their identity. You see that reflected. Uh, it, the idea that that would somehow be a form of aggression in a minor way. I mean, that's basically just microaggressions, but if you take a different version of it without the without the mm -hmm. name, a lot of the complaints you see from, you know, the right on campus are basically center on that. The idea that it's uh, it's hard to be in a uh, in a minority and deal with people having different assumptions than you. You know, all, all these types of things. And then on top of that, you know, you also have this issue on both sides that the very people who most want safe spaces and that sort of thing can also be the most uh, belligerent about, and provocative to the other side, right? It's the people who most have, whether mm -hmm. it's from kind of the, um, the left or right, the people who are most about, you know, oh, it's not fair for people to make me feel uncomfortable are the ones who can be the most belligerent. Just finally, you have this issue of it's a, it's a form of identity politics, you know, and I think this is particularly true in the Trump era, where the right kind of take on full-fledged uh, identity politics and the idea that it's an identity, regardless of whether it's a mere political identity or whether it's an identity associated with, you know, white people or native-born Americans or whatever, um, th there's much more of a pure visceral, this is our side, this is their side, and it's less ideological per se and much more about uh, tribalism. So uh, on the issue of safe, safe spaces, you know, this was, this was actually something that was coming up already, not in nomenclature exactly, but, you know, eight years ago when I was collecting these data, uh, conservatives were talking about this, and they, they saw their clubs as being places where it would be a, a place where they could go and they could just kind of uh, experience some relief from not having to constantly argue their side and there would be some understanding among people. But there were also places, interestingly enough, where a lot of rumors got started. So some of the uh, kind of urban legends about this professor was grading poorly if you had conservative ideas on your paper, these kinds of stories would start getting passed around as well. So there was a lot of solidarity uh, in these spaces, but also we saw them as places where these these kinds of stories about, uh, not myself, I didn't, I didn't experience a whole lot of red on my paper. I didn't get the non-passing grade, but I know somebody else who told me somebody else did. So these pockets of uh, solidarity. Okay, so am I getting this right? Am I hearing that even back then, that as conservatives and conservative students in particular were poo-pooing the sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of discourse around safe spaces that women, students of color, trans students, et cetera, were sort of pushing for on their college campuses, that these students at the same exact time understood for themselves the value of their clubs as a safe space? And way, way back then, there's a lot of borrowing, adopting the discourses and language of, of multiculturalism, diversity of viewpoints, and so on. I, I would be hard-pressed to remember if they called these, you know, their club safe spaces per se, um, but that's absolutely the way that they were thinking about these things. And, you know, we had a student on the Western flagship campus who straight up said, you know, black students 
and and let's recall on this campus, you know, black students made up maybe 5% of the student population. But black students are fortunate. They have clubs that support them. Um, and it's really the Christian white male on this campus who is the most uh, vilified and, and suffers the most. So this... So this discourse goes back I love it. quite a ways. Um, and, and, and it's been, you know, this isn't just the work of 20-somethings on these campuses. You know, there are national conservative organizations like Young America's Foundation, Leadership Institute, that have been actively promoting these ways of, of, of understanding one's, uh, one's experience. And in some ways, students adopt, you know, some of those arguments from the national organizations. In other ways, they see their lives differently. But there has really been this coordinated effort to uh, get students to think like this. I, I have, so I have a question. Uh, one thing that I learned from Gabriel's uh, whole experience with the uh, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, invitation at UCLA is it really pressed upon me the value of mentoring conservative students. I think a lot of us, uh, or I think a lot of scholars who are liberal in their leaning, their first their first reaction when they meet a conservative student is to try to proselytize. With this whole incident with Milo at UCLA, it really impressed on me the the need that students have to get mentorship in navigating uh, the advancement of their own views in the public sphere and how to do that effectively. What are your views on that? Like, uh, do left-leaning professors, do you think uh, we have an obligation to help mentor conservative students, even if we don't uh, agree with their political views? Or, uh, or is it is it something that they don't need? There's others who can do the job well. Well, I, I think all students need to be mentored, and and particularly on campuses like mine, which is a large University of California campus, and and you know to kind of um, counter the feelings of isolation or alienation, it's, it's really best if adults and particularly faculty can, can talk with all students and particularly those who are feeling most uh, at odds with the campus, whether those are students of color or students who are um, conservative or what have you. Um, I think it's really important for faculty, and this is not a controversial statement, but you know, to not go into their classrooms and uh, make fun of President Trump, uh, to to not to not do things that are, you know, just baldly political, and um, or to have you know Obama posters in their offices where students come to office hours. I I personally think that that's really important. I think that can go a long way to making um, conservative students feel more at home. I don't, I don't know that I would say that any of the faculty I know try to proselytize to students. I think we try to um, you know, if we're teaching about inequality, it's hard not to talk about particular kinds of policies. And, you know, a lot of the policies that we think work happen to be the policies of, of more liberal administrations or actors. Uh, but to me, that doesn't seem like proselytizing. Um, but in, in the 
do you think that it would be perceived as such? Like that's the that's that's the rub, right? Like uh, to one person, it might be obvious that global warming is happening or that cutting taxes on the rich won't create middle class jobs. But to say that is to advance what is seen as a liberal party line and how, how do yeah. you walk that line well so one one of the things that i've thought quite a bit about is how faculty can um you know render their expert knowledge in their classrooms but then make students feel like it is their floor as well to participate in classroom discussions and also to kind of open up um uh, encourage students to come to office hours to talk about these issues uh, in in private if they don't want to kind of out themselves as being outliers in the class. Um, but but just to kind of um, you know underscore that I'm here to listen to their ideas as well, um, and that these are open for discussion. Yeah. So. Um... A minute ago, you said that you don't think it's controversial that professors shouldn't proselytize, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I actually disagree with that. I think it is con- – not that I disagree on the merits. I, I agree with you normatively. But in terms of describing how people feel about it, I, I disagree with that. It's not consistent with what I've observed, right? So it's like after the election, there was an enormous amount of stuff on Twitter and blogs and email listservs and – you know, saying like, you know, how do we talk to our students about the trauma of just having gone through this election, which presumes that the students objectively perceived it as traumatic, right? <laughs> um, you know, that they, they disagreed with it and they saw it as grievous. Whereas, you know, you, you didn't hear those kind of conversations, uh, definitely not in sociology departments, after, you know, Obama was reelected in 2012 or something like that, right? You don't have this idea that it's traumatic. And then even aside from kind of electoral politics, you know, around the time that we're all writing our syllabi, so like you know late summer you'll see uh kind of you'll see like these tweets that get like a million retweets with like here's a link with my blog post on how to get through to students who you know are resistant to uh critical perspectives on society you know and and when people talk about that i i think that they are talking about specific empirical findings that are good science and that students very often reject because they're not comfortable with them so i think that there probably are a lot of students where if you try and lecture on like pager that the students will say, oh, that can't be, right? Maybe maybe 50 years ago that was true, but I don't believe it. But, you know, it's good science, and they should believe it because it's good science. But I don't think that people are anguishing over how to get their students to believe McClanahan and Sandifer, right? I think people are anguishing over how to get students to accept findings that um, support their own ideological positions and are more or less indifferent to whether or not students accept uh, findings that, are a little more uncomfortable for their ideological positions if they even teach those findings at all. Oh, well, anyway, so, ahead. I mean, what I was going to say is, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I think your example of the trauma mm-hmm. of the election, for example, need not sure. be uh, need not be a partisan one. I mean, I, I have conservative students here who were traumatized <laughs> uh, during and after the election as well, right? Um, well, I was too, but I, I, but listen, I'm one of the like, you know, three percent of Republicans who voted for McMullen, uh-huh. you know, and and I recognize that like, you know, ninety-seven percent of the party stuck to the party, right? I mean, uh-huh. so I, I, it's like, yes, I, I accept that there were conservatives, Republicans, whatever, who were extremely unhappy with the election, 
because I'm one no, of them, well, but I, I just no, recognize but... in general, there's a lot of people out there who, it, that saying, if you were traumatized by the election, you know, this is a safe space to come talk to you. Here's my safety pin on my lapel, whatever. Uh, and I'm going to have a lecture about it, you know, um, is implicitly uh, saying this is a hostile uh, thing and these are wrong ideas and everything like that. And I'm saying that even though yeah, and I so, kind of but, I mean, that to that point, I mean, I have students who voted for Trump who were traumatized by the election, mm-hmm. right? And also traumatized by the ensuing reaction to Trump's victory, right? And so I mm-hmm. basically, I think there was a lot of trauma <laughs> to go to go around, right? So um, to, to that point, and all for totally different reasons, right? I mean, you know, I'm here in DC and, you know, and kind of the, you know, sort of the tradition here is, you know, when you're, when your person wins, like the students here run to the White House, right, to celebrate, right? And I had students who voted for Trump who felt like, oh, like, we didn't feel like we could do that. We didn't feel like we could have that moment. That was so unfair. I, I was saying there's lots of trauma to go around. No, I, I agree with that, but I'm just saying the, the kinds of things I saw of people saying, "How do we help our students react to the election process?" That they weren't, they didn't have that in mind. They they had in mind people who dis who disliked the election because they wanted the other person to win, and kind of presumptively that's saying that you know the university as an institution, your professor, whatever, is uh, you know not just in their personal life when they go home, but kind of you know ex cathedra is uh, taking a political position. I think that the position that we all find ourselves in as citizens and, you know, as faculty uh, is one of a lot of um, navigating these days. So on the one hand, you want to signal to your students that you understand that there was shock. Uh, after the election. I know that um, I did that with a small group of students who wanted to come in and talk with me, uh, you know, more on the, on the liberal side. Um, and and, and I, I think you also have to kind of go into your classrooms and, and try to set the tone from the first class on, you know, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, some controversial things today, or maybe not controversial, but things that people will will disagree with. And here are some standard rules for how we're going to engage in our classroom. And by the way, uh, if you'd like to come talk with me about your College Republican Club, please do so in office hours. And if you'd like to talk with me about something else, please do so. You know, my office hours are in a small group. I think we're trying to we're trying to hit a lot of different constituencies right now, and we should be pretty agile about this. We're smart, you know. We uh, we may have been uh, somewhat complacent and until now, but but we can. I think that we can uh, find a stride here. Well, normatively, that sounds great, and and I'd like to see everybody do exactly what you're describing, um, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that it, or. or just say out entirely, but I think what you're saying is ideal. I, I just was disagreeing with the idea that it's uncontroversial to um, kind of keep politics out of lecturing. Right. Well, and then and then besides that issue of keeping politics out of lecturing, I think it's also really interesting when you run into a uh, faculty member who had not previously really talked with students on the right. Um, and once they do, you know, there's there's often a bit of an epiphany of, oh, 
wow, these students are really thinking about the issues or, you know, they're, they're really crafting their arguments quite carefully. And I have a lot of respect for that. So, um, so, you know, there, I, I, I just think that there are lots of side benefits of, 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 of trying to meet people in smaller groups, uh, not think of our jobs just as being lecturers and, and in the classroom, but also as people who are available to students to come and talk to. You know what else I got from your book and from Gabriel's, uh, Gabriel's uh, story is that it's a very big ask to ask somebody to like switch party affiliations. Like you're you're asking people to turn their backs maybe on their families, on their hometown, on their faith, a lot of things. And uh, maybe uh, this whole idea that everything has to be, uh, that politics has to be a team sport is what's misguiding us. And if we can help move Republicans towards sensible policy discussions, well, then it's a win for center-left people who also want sensible policy. And then uh, neither side has to pander to the extremes of their own side. Yeah, well, clearly we're seeing that um, in the populace at large that Democrat and Republican has become much more of a um, of an identity, right? I mean, the, the policies are so bundled with identity these days and the boundaries between them and the hatred of the other side and all of that. Um, but, but to your point about getting students to think carefully about about policies, I, I've been attending college Republican uh, group uh, meetings here, and I have been absolutely fascinated, floored, and impressed at how seriously they're talking about the issues. And um, in fact, tonight I'm going to a college Republicans and Democrats debate, and I expect to see really good thinking um, by these leaders of, of these clubs. Now, these are the most active people on campus, not the, you know, run-of-the-mill Republicans or Democrats, um, you know, folks who are interested in political futures and so on. But if they can convince others to, to, to really delve in and, and not just where their party affiliation as, as, as an identity, but to really think about issues, we'll, we'll be in good shape. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury, and Lisette Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.